Dickens Christmas Books, Section 17. Chapter 2 of The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain. Part 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. The Haunted Man and the Ghost Bargain, Chapter 2, Part 1, The Gift Diffused. A small man sat in a small parlour, partitioned off from a small shop by a small screen, pasted all over with small scraps of newspapers. In company with the small man was almost any amount of small children you may please to name, at least it seemed so. They made, in that very limited sphere of action, such an imposing effect in point of numbers. Of these small fry, two had, by some strong machinery, been got to bed in a corner, where they might have reposed snugly enough in the sleep of innocence but for a constitutional propensity to keep awake and also to scuffle in and out of bed. The immediate occasion of these predatory dashes at the waking world was the construction of an oyster-shell wall in a corner by two other youths of tender age, on which fortification the two in bed made harassing descents, like those accused Picts and Scots who beleaguer the early historical studies of most young Britons, and then withdrew to their own territory. In addition to the stir attendant on these inroads, and the retorts of the invaded, who pursued hotly and made lunges at the bedclothes under which the marauders took refuge, another little boy in another little bed contributed his mite of confusion to the family stock by casting his boots upon the waters, in other words, by launching these and several small objects, inoffensive in themselves, though of a hard substance considered as missiles at the distributors of his repose, who were not slow to return these compliments besides which another little boy the biggest there but still little was tottering to and fro bent on one side and considerably affected in his knees by the weight of a large baby which he was supposed by a fiction that obtains sometimes in sanguine families to be hushing to sleep but oh the inexhaustible regions of contemplation and watchfulness into which this baby's eyes were then only beginning to compose themselves to stare over his unconscious shoulder it was a very moloch of a baby on whose insatiate altar the whole existence of this particular young brother was offered up a daily sacrifice its personality may be said to have consisted in its never being quiet in any one place for five consecutive minutes and never going to sleep when required tetterby's baby was as well known in the neighbourhood as the postman or the pot-boy it roved from doorstep to doorstep in the arms of little johnny tetterby who lagged heavily at the rear of troops of juveniles who followed the tumblers or the monkey and came up all on one side a little too late for everything that was attractive from monday morning until saturday night wherever children congregated to play there was little moloch making johnny fag and toil wherever johnny desired to stay little moloch became fractious and would not remain whenever johnny wanted to go out moloch was asleep and must be watched whenever johnny wanted to stay at home moloch was awake and must be taken out yet johnny was verily persuaded that it was a faultless baby without its peer in the realm of england and was quite content to catch meek glimpses of things in general form behind its skirts or over its limp flapping bonnet and to go staggering about with it like a very little porter with a very large parcel which was not directed to anybody and could never be delivered anywhere the small man who sat in the small parlour making fruitless attempts to read his newspaper peaceably in the midst of this disturbance was the father of the family and the chief of the firm described in the inscription over the little shop front by the name and title of a tetterby and company newsmen indeed strictly speaking he was the only personage answering to that designation, as company was a mere poetical abstraction, altogether baseless and impersonal. Tetterby's was the corner shop in Jerusalem buildings. There was a good show of literature in the window, chiefly consisting of picture newspapers out of date and serial pirates and footpads, 
Walking-sticks, likewise, and marbles were included in the stock and trade. It had once extended into the light confectionery line, but it would seem that these elegancies of life were not in demand about Jerusalem buildings, for nothing connected with that branch of commerce remained in the window, except a sort of small glass lantern containing a languishing mass of bull's-eyes, which had melted in the summer and congealed in the winter until all hope of ever getting them out, or of eating them without eating the lantern too, was gone for ever. Tetterby's had tried its hand at several things. It had once made a feeble little dart at the toy business, for in another lantern there was a heap of minute wax dolls, all sticking together upside down in the direst confusion, with their feet on one another's heads, and a precipitate of broken arms and legs at the bottom. It had made a move in the millinery direction, which a few dry wiry bonnet shapes remained in a corner of the window to attest it had fancied that a living might lie hidden in the tobacco trade and had stuck up a representation of native of each of the three integral portions of the british empire in the act of consuming that fragrant weed with a poetic legend attached importing that united in one cause they sat and joked one chewed tobacco one took snuff one smoked but nothing seemed to have come of it except flies time had been when it had put a forlorn trust in imitative jewellery for in one pane of glass there was a card of cheap seals and another of pencil cases and a mysterious black amulet of inscrutable intention labelled ninepence but to that hour jerusalem buildings had brought none of them in short tetterby's had tried so hard to get a livelihood out of jerusalem buildings in one way or other and appeared to have done so indifferently in all that the best position in the firm was too evidently companies company as a bodiless creation being untroubled with the vulgar inconveniences of hunger and thirst being chargeable neither to the poor's rates nor the assessed taxes or having no young family to provide for tetterby himself however in his little parlour as already mentioned having the presence of a young family impressed upon his mind in a manner too clamorous to be disregarded or to comport with the quiet perusal of a newspaper laid down his paper wheeled in his distraction a few times round the parlour like an undecided carrier-pigeon made an ineffectual rush at one or two flying little figures in bed-gowns that skimmed past him and then bearing suddenly down upon the only unoffending member of the family boxed the ears of little moloch's nurse you bad boy said mr tetterby haven't you any feeling for your poor father after the fatigues and anxieties of a hard winter's day since five o'clock in the morning but must you wither his rest and corrode his latest intelligence with your wishes tricks isn't it enough sir that your brother dolphus is toiling and moiling in the fog and cold and you rolling in the lap of luxury with a with a baby and everything you can wish for said mr tetterby heaping this up as a great climax of blessings but must you make a wilderness of home and maniacs of your parents must you johnny hey at each interrogation mr tetterby made a feint of boxing his ears again but thought better of it and held his hand oh father whimpered johnny when i wasn't doing anything i'm sure but taking care of sally and getting her to sleep oh father i wish my little woman would come home said mr tetterby relenting and repenting i only wish my little woman would come home i ain't fit to deal with em they make my head go round and get the better of me oh johnny isn't it enough that your dear mother has provided you with that sweet sister indicating moloch isn't it enough that you were seven boys before without a ray of gal and that your dear mother went through what she did go through on purpose that you might all of you have a little sister but must you so behave yourself as to make my head swim softening more and more as his own tender feelings and those of his injured son were worked on mr tettleby concluded by embracing him and immediately breaking away to catch one of the real delinquents a reasonably good start occurring he succeeded after a short but smart run and some rather severe cross-country work under and over the bedsteads and in and out among the intricacies of the chairs in capturing this infant whom he condignly punished and bore to bed this example had a powerful and apparently mesmeric influence on him of the boots who instantly fell into a deep sleep though he had been but a moment before broad awake and in the highest possible feather 
nor was it lost upon the two young architects who retired to bed in an adjoining closet with great privacy and speed the comrade of the intercepted one also shrinking into his nest with similar discretion mr tetterby when he paused for breath found himself unexpectedly in a scene of peace my little woman herself said mr tetterby wiping his flushed face could hardly have done it better i only wish my little woman had had to do it i do indeed Mr. Tetterby sought upon his screen for a passage appropriate to be impressed upon his children's mind on the occasion, and read the following. It is an undoubted fact that all remarkable men have had remarkable mothers, and have respected them in after-life as their best friends. Think of your own remarkable mother, my boys, said Mr. Tetterby, and know her value while she is still among you. He sat down again in his chair by the fire, and composed himself cross-legged over his newspaper. "'Let anybody, I don't care who it is, get out of bed again,' said Tetterby, as a general proclamation, delivered in a very soft-hearted manner, "'and astonishment will be the portion of that respected contemporary,' which expression Mr. Tetterby selected from his screen. "'Johnny, my child, take care of your only sister, Sally,' for she's the brightest gem that ever sparkled on your early brow. Johnny sat down on a little stool, and devotedly crushed himself beneath the weight of Moloch. "'Ah, what a gift that baby is to you, Johnny,' said his father, "'and how thankful you ought to be. It is not generally known, Johnny,' he was now referring to the screen again, "'but it is a fact ascertained by accurate calculations that the following immense percentage of babies never attain to two years old, that is to say—' "'Oh, don't, father, please,' cried Johnny. "'I can't bear it when I think of Sally.' Mr. Tetterby desisted. Johnny, with a profound sense of his trust, wiped his eyes and hushed his sister. "'Your brother Dolphus,' said his father, poking the fire, "'is late to-night, Johnny, and will come home like a lump of ice. "'What's got your precious mother?' "'Here's mother and Dolphus, too, father,' exclaimed Johnny. "'I think—' "'You're right,' returned his father, listening. "'Yes, that's the footstep of my little woman.' The process of induction by which Mr. Tettleby had come to the conclusion that his wife was a little woman was his own secret. She would have made two editions of himself very easily. Considered as an individual, she was rather remarkable for being robust and portly, but considered with reference to her husband, her dimensions became magnificent, nor did they assume a less imposing proportion when studied with reference to the size of her seven sons, who were but diminutive. In the case of Sally, however, Mrs. Tetterby had asserted herself at last, as nobody knew better than the victim Johnny, who weighed and measured that exacting idol every hour in the day. Mrs. Tetterby, who had been marketing and carried a basket, threw back her bonnet and shawl, and, sitting down fatigued, commanded Johnny to bring his sweet charge to her straightway for a kiss. Johnny, having complied and gone back to his stool, and again crushed himself, Master Adolphus Tetterby, who had by this time unwound his torso out of a prismatic comforter, apparently interminable, requested the same favour. Johnny, having again complied, and again gone back to his stool, and again crushed himself, Mr. Tetterby, struck by a sudden thought, preferred the same claim on his own parental part. The satisfaction of this third desire completely exhausted the sacrifice, which had hardly breath enough left to go back to his stool, crushed himself again, and pant at his relations. "'Whatever you do, Johnny,' said Mrs. Tetterby, shaking her head, "'take care of her, or never look your mother in the face again.' "'Nor your brother,' said Adolphus. "'Nor your father, Johnny,' added Mr. Tetterby. Johnny, much affected by this conditional renunciation of him, looked down at Moloch's eyes to see that they were all right so far, and skilfully patted her back, which was uppermost, and rocked her with his foot. "'Are you wet, Adolphus, my boy?' said his father. "'Come and take my chair and dry yourself.' "'No, father, thank ye,' said Adolphus, smoothing himself down with his hands. "'I ain't very wet, I don't think. Does my face shine much, father?' "'Well, it does look waxy, my boy,' returned Mr. Tetterby. "'It's the weather, father,' said Adolphus, polishing his cheeks on the worn sleeve of his jacket. "'What with rain and sleet and wind and snow and fog, my face gets quite brought out into a rash sometimes. And shines, it does. Oh, don't it, though!' 
Master Adolphus was also in the newspaper line of life, being employed by a more thriving firm than his father and company to vend newspapers at a railway station, where his chubby little person, like a shabbily disguised Cupid, and his shrill little voice—he was not much more than ten years old—were as well known as the hoarse panting of the locomotives running in and out. His juvenility might have been at some loss for a harmless outlet in this early application to traffic, but for a fortunate discovery he made of a means of entertaining himself, and of dividing the long day into stages of interest without neglecting business. This ingenious invention, remarkable like many great discoveries for its simplicity, consisted in varying the first vowel in the word paper, and substituting in its stead, at different periods of the day, all the other vowels in grammatical succession. Thus, before daylight in the winter time, he went to and fro in his little oilskin cap and cape, and his big comforter, piercing the heavy air with his cry of, "'Morning, paper!' which about an hour before noon changed to, "'Morning, pepper!' which at about two changed to, "'Morning, pipper!' which in a couple of hours changed to, "'Morning, pauper!' and so declined with the sun into, "'Evening, pupper!' to the great relief and comfort of this young gentleman's spirits. Mrs. Tetterby, his lady mother, who had been sitting with her bonnet and shawl thrown back as aforesaid, thoughtfully turning her wedding-ring round and round upon her finger, now rose and divested herself out of her out-of-door attire, began to lay the cloth for supper. "'Ah, dear me, dear me, dear me,' said Mrs. Tetterby, "'that's the way the world goes.' "'Which is the way the world goes, my dear?' asked Mr. Tetterby, looking round. "'Oh, nothing,' said Mrs. Tetterby. Mr. Tetterby elevated his eyebrows, folded his newspaper afresh, and carried his eyes up to it, and down it, and across it, but was wandering in his attention, and not reading it. Mrs. Tetterby, at the same time, laid the cloth, but rather as she was punishing the table than preparing the family supper, hitting it unnecessarily hard with the knives and forks, slapping it with the plates, dinting it with the salt cellar. "'Ah, dear me, dear me, dear me,' said Mrs. Tetterby. "'That's the way the world goes.' "'My duck,' returned her husband, looking round again, "'you said that before. Which is the way the world goes?' "'Oh, nothing,' said Mrs. Tetterby. "'Sophia,' remonstrated her husband, "'you said that before, too.' "'Well, I'll say it again, if you like,' returned Mrs. Tetterby. "'Oh, nothing. There.' "'And again, if you like. Oh, nothing. There.' "'And again, if you like. Oh, nothing. Now, then.' Mr. Tetterby brought his eye to bear upon the partner of his bosom, and said in mild astonishment, "'My little woman, what has put you out?' "'I'm sure I don't know,' she retorted. "'Don't ask me.' "'Who said I was put out at all? I never did.' Mr. Tetterby gave up the perusal of his newspaper as a bad job, and taking a slow walk across the room, with his hands behind him and his shoulders raised, his gait according perfectly with the resignation of his manner, addressed himself to his two eldest offspring. "'Your supper will be ready in a minute, Dolphus,' said Mr. Tetterby. "'Your mother has been out in the wet to the cook-shop to buy it. It was very good of your mother to do so.' "'You shall get some supper, too, very soon, Johnny. "'Your mother's pleased with you, my man, "'for being so attentive to your precious sister.' Mrs. Tetterby, without any remark, but with the decided subsidence of her animosity towards the table, finished her preparations, and took from her ample basket a substantial slab of hot peas pudding wrapped in paper, and a basin covered with a saucer, which, on being uncovered, sent forth an odour so agreeable that the three pair of eyes in the two beds opened wide and fixed themselves upon the banquet. Mr. Tetterby, without regarding this tacit invitation to be seated, stood repeating slowly, "'Yes, yes, your supper will be ready in a minute, Dolphus. Your mother went out in the wet to the cook-shop to buy it. It was very good of your mother so to do, until Mrs. Tetterby, who had been exhibiting sundry tokens of contrition behind him, caught him round the neck and wept. "'Oh, Dolphus,' said Mrs. Tetterby, "'how could I go and behave so?' 
This reconciliation affected Adolphus the younger and Johnny to that degree that they both, as with one accord, raised a dismal cry which had the effect of immediately shutting up the round eyes in the beds and utterly routing the two remaining little tetterbys just then stealing in from the adjoining closet to see what was going on in the eating way. "'I am sure, Adolphus,' sobbed Mrs. Tetterby, "'coming home, I had no more idea than a child unborn.' Mr. Tetterby seemed to dislike this figure of speech, and observed, "'Say than the baby, my dear.' "'Had no more idea than the baby,' said Mrs. Tetterby. "'Johnny, don't look at me, but look at her, or she'll fall out of your lap and be killed, and then you'll die in agonies of a broken heart and serve you right.' "'No more idea I hadn't than the darling of being cross when I came home. But somehow, Dolphus—' Mrs. Tetterby paused, and again turned her wedding-ring round and round upon her finger. "'I see,' said Mr. Tetterby, "'I understand. My little woman was put out. Hard times and hard weather, hard work, make it trying now and then.' "'I see, bless your soul. No wonder. Dolph, my man,' continued Mr. Tetterby, exploring the basin with a fork, "'here's your mother been and bought at the cook-shop, besides peas-pudding, a whole knuckle of a lovely roast leg of pork, with lots of crackling left upon it, and with seasoning gravy and mustard quite unlimited. Hand in your plate, my boy, and begin while it's simmering.' Master Adolphus, needing no second summons, received his portion with eyes rendered moist by appetite, and withdrawing to his particular stool, fell upon his supper tooth and nail. Johnny was not forgotten, but received his rations on bread, lest he should, in a flush of gravy, trickle any on the baby. He was required, for similar reasons, to keep his pudding, when not on active service, in his pocket. There might have been more pork on the knuckle-bone, which knuckle-bone, the carver at the cook-shop had assuredly not forgotten in carving for previous customers, but there was no stint of seasoning, and that is an accessory dreamily suggesting pork, and pleasantly cheating the sense of taste. The peas-pudding, too, the gravy and mustard, like the eastern rose in respect of the nightingale, if they were not absolutely pork, had lived near it. So upon the whole there was the flavour of a middle-sized pig." it was irresistible to the tetterbys in bed who though professing to slumber peacefully crawled out when unseen by their parents and silently appealed to their brothers for any gastronomic token of fraternal affection they not hard of heart presenting scraps in return it resulted that a party of light skirmishes in nightgowns were careering about the parlour all through supper which harassed mr tetterby exceedingly and once or twice imposed upon him the necessity of a charge before which these guerrilla troops retired in all directions and in great confusion mrs tetterby did not enjoy her supper there seemed to be something on mrs tetterby's mind at one time she laughed without reason and at another time she cried without reason and at last she laughed and cried together in a manner so very unreasonable that her husband was confounded my little woman said mr tetterby if the world goes that way it appears to go the wrong way and to choke you give me a drop of water said mrs tetterby struggling with herself and don't speak to me for the present or take any notice of me don't do it Mr. Tetterby, having administered the water, turned suddenly on the unlucky Johnny, who was full of sympathy, and demanded why he was wallowing there in gluttony and idleness, instead of coming forward with the baby, that the sight of her might revive his mother. Johnny immediately approached, borne down by its weight, but Mrs. Tetterby holding out her hand to signify that she was not in a condition to bear that trying appeal to her feelings, he was interdicted from advancing another inch, on pain of perpetual hatred from all his dearest connections, and accordingly retired to his stool again, and crushed himself as before. After a pause, Mrs. Tetterby said she was better now, and began to laugh. "'My little woman,' said her husband dubiously, "'are you quite sure you're better? "'Or are you, Sophia, about to break out in a fresh direction?' "'No, Dolphus, no,' replied his wife. "'I'm quite myself.' With that, settling her hair and pressing the palms of her hands upon her eyes, she laughed again. "'What a wicked fool I was to think so for a moment,' said Mrs. Tetterby. "'Come nearer, Dolphus, and let me ease my mind and tell you what I mean. "'Let me tell you all about it.' Mr. Tetterby, bringing his chair closer, Mrs. Tetterby laughed again, gave him a hug, and wiped her eyes. 
"'You know, Dolphus, my dear,' said Mrs. Tetterby, "'that when I was single I might have given myself away in several directions. At one time, four after me at once, two of them were sons of Mars.' "'We're all sons of Mars, my dear,' said Mr. Tetterby, "'jointly with Pa's.' "'I don't mean that,' replied his wife. "'I mean soldiers, sergeants.' "'Oh,' said Mr. Tetterby. "'Well, Dolphus, I'm sure I never think of such things now to regret them, and I'm sure I've got as good a husband, and would do as much to prove that I was fond of him as—as any little woman in the world,' said Mr. Tetterby. "'Very good, very good.' If Mr. Tetterby had been ten feet high, he could not have expressed a gentler consideration for Mrs. Tetterby's fairy-like stature, and if Mrs. Tetterby had been two feet high, she could not have felt it more appropriately her due. "'But you see, Dolphus,' said Mrs. Tetterby, "'this being Christmas-time, when all people who can make holiday, and when all people who have got money like to spend some, I did, somehow, get a little out of sorts when I was in the streets just now.' There were so many things to be sold, such delicious things to eat, such fine things to look at, such delightful things to have, and there was so much calculating and calculating necessary before I durst lay out a sixpence for the commonest thing, and the basket was so large and wanted so much in it, and my stock of money was so small and would go such a little way. You hate me, don't you, Dolphus? Not quite, said Mr. Tetterby, as yet. Well, I'll tell you the whole truth pursued his wife penitently, and then perhaps you will. I felt all this, so much, when I was trudging about in the cold, and when I saw a lot of other calculating faces and large baskets trudging about too, that I began to think whether I mightn't have done better and been happier if I hadn't. The wedding ring went round again, and Mrs. Tetterby shook her downcast head as she turned it. I see, said her husband quietly, if you hadn't married at all, or if you had married someone else. Yes, sobbed Mrs. Tetterby. That's really what I thought. Do you hate me now, Dolphus? Why, no, said Mr. Tetterby. I don't find that I do, as yet. Mrs. Tetterby gave him a thankful kiss, and went on. I begin to hope you won't now, Dolphus, though I'm afraid I haven't told you the worst. I can't think what came over me. I don't know whether I was ill or mad or what I was, but I couldn't call up anything that seemed to bind us to each other or to reconcile me to my fortune. All the pleasures and enjoyments we had ever had, they seemed so poor and insignificant, I hated them. I could have trodden on them, and I could think of nothing else except our being poor and the number of mouths there were at home. "'Well, well, my dear,' said Mr. Tetterby, shaking his head encouragingly, "'that's truth, after all. We are poor, and there are a number of mouths at home here.' "'Ah, but Dolph, Dolph!' cried his wife, laying her hands upon his neck. "'My good, kind, patient fellow! When I had been at home a very little while, how different! Oh, Dolph, dear, how different it was!' I felt as if there was a rush of recollection on me all at once that softened my hard heart and filled it up till it was bursting. All our struggles for a livelihood, all our cares and wants since we have been married, all the times of sickness, all the hours of watching we have ever had by one another or by the children, seemed to speak to me and say that they had made us one, and that I never might have been or could have been or would have been any other than the wife and mother I am. Then the cheap enjoyments that I could have trodden on so cruelly got to be so precious to me, oh, so precious and dear, that I couldn't bear to think how much I had wronged them, and I said and say again a hundred times, how could I ever behave so, Dolphus, how could I ever have had the heart to do it? The good woman, quite carried away by her honest tenderness and remorse, was weeping with all her heart when she started up with a scream and ran behind her husband. Her cry was so terrified that the children started from their sleep and from their beds and clung about her, nor did her gaze belie her voice as she pointed to a pale man in a black cloak who had come into the room. "'Look at that man! Look there! What does he want?' "'My dear,' returned her husband, "'I'll ask him if you let me go. What's the matter? How you shake!' I saw him in the street when I was out just now. He looked at me and stood near me. I am afraid of him. Afraid of him? Why? I don't know why. I—stop, husband, for he was going towards the stranger. 
she had one hand pressed upon her forehead and one upon her breast and there was a peculiar fluttering all over her and a hurried unsteady motion of her eyes as if she had lost something are you ill my dear what is it that is going from me again she muttered in a low voice what is this that is going away then she abruptly answered ill no i am quite well and stood looking vacantly at the floor her husband who had not been altogether free from the infection of her fear at first and whom the present strangeness of her manner did not tend to reassure addressed himself to the pale visitor in the black cloak who stood still and whose eyes were bent upon the ground what may be your pleasure sir he asked with us i fear that my coming in unperceived returned the visitor has alarmed you but you were talking and did not hear me my little woman says perhaps you heard her say it returned mr tetterby that it's not the first time you have alarmed her to-night i am sorry for it i remember to have observed her for a few moments only in the street i had no intention of frightening her as he raised his eyes in speaking she raised hers it was extraordinary to see what dread she had of him and with what dread he observed it and yet how narrowly and closely my name he said is redlaw i come from the old college hard by a young gentleman who is a student there lodges in your house does he not mr denham said tetterby yes it was a natural action and so slight as to be hardly noticeable but the little man before speaking again passed his hand across his forehead and looked quickly round the room as though he were sensible of some change in its atmosphere the chemist instantly transferring to him the look of dread he had directed towards the wife stepped back and his face turned paler the gentleman's room said tetterby is upstairs sir there's a more convenient private entrance but as you have come in here it will save your going out into the cold if you take this little staircase showing one communicating directly with the parlour and go up to him that way if you wish to see him yes i wish to see him said the chemist can you spare a light the watchfulness of his haggard look and the inexplicable distrust that darkened it seemed to trouble mr tetterby he paused and looked fixedly at him in return stood for a minute or two like a man stupefied or fascinated at length he said i'll light you sir if you follow me no replied the chemist i don't wish to be attended or announced to him he does not expect me i would rather go alone please to give me the light if you can spare it and i'll find the way in the quickness of his expression of this desire and in taking the candle from the newsman he touched him on the breast withdrawing his hand hastily almost as though he wounded him by accident for he did not know in what part of himself his new power resided or how it was communicated or how the manner of its reception varied in different persons he turned and descended the stair but when he reached the top he stopped and looked down the wife was standing in the same place twisting her ring round and round upon her finger the husband with his head bent forward on his breast was musing heavily and sullenly the children still clustering about the mother gazed timidly after the visitor and nestled together when they saw him looking down come said the father roughly there's enough of this get to bed here the place is inconvenient and small enough the mother added without you get to bed the whole brood scared and sad crept away little johnny and the baby lagging last the mother glancing contemptuously round the sordid room and tossing from her the fragments of their meal stopped on the threshold of her task of clearing the table and sat down pondering idly and dejectedly the father betook himself to the chimney corner and impatiently raking the small fire together bent over it as if he would monopolize it all they did not interchange a word the chemist paler than before stole upward like a thief looking back upon the change below and dreading equally to go on or return what have i done he said confusedly what am i going to do to be the benefactor of mankind he thought he heard a voice reply he looked round but there was nothing there and a passage now shutting out the little parlour from his view he went on directing his eyes before him at the way he went it is only since last night he muttered gloomily that i have remained shut up and yet all things are strange to me i am strange to myself i am here as in a dream what interest have i in this place or in any place that i can bring to my remembrance my mind is going blind 
there was a door before him, and he knocked at it. Being invited by a voice within to enter, he complied. "'Is that my kind nurse?' said the voice. "'But I need not ask her. There is no one else to come here.' It spoke cheerfully, though in a languid tone, and attracted his attention to a young man lying on a couch, drawn before the chimney-piece, with the back towards the door. A meagre, scanty stove, pinched and huddled like a sick man's cheeks, and bricked into the centre of a hearth that it could scarcely warm, contained the fire to which his face was turned. Being so near the windy house-top, it wasted quickly, and with a busy sound, and the burning ashes dropped down fast. "'They chink when they shoot out here,' said the student, smiling. "'So, according to the gossips, they are not coffins, but purses.' I shall be well and rich yet some day, if it please God, and shall live perhaps to love a daughter Milly, in remembrance of the kindest nature and the gentlest heart in the world. He put up his hand as if expecting her to take it, but being weakened he lay still with his face resting on his other hand and did not turn round. The chemist glanced about the room, at the students' books and papers piled upon a table in a corner, where they and his extinguished reading-lamp now prohibited and put away, told of the attentive hours that had gone before this illness and perhaps caused it, at such signs of his old health and freedom, as the out-of-door attire that hung idle on the wall. At those remembrances of other and less solitary scenes, the little miniatures upon the chimney-piece in the drawing of home, at that token of his emulation, perhaps in some sort, of his personal attachment to, the framed engraving of himself the looker-on. The time had been only yesterday when not one of these objects, in its remotest association of interest with the living figure before him, would have been lost on Redlaw. Now they were but objects, or, if any gleam of such connection shot upon him, it perplexed and not enlightened him, as he stood looking round with a dull wonder. The student, recalling the thin hand which had remained so long untouched, raised himself on the couch and turned his head. "'Mr. Redlaw!' he exclaimed, and started up. Redlaw put out his arm. "'Don't come nearer to me. I will sit here. Remain you where you are.' He sat down on a chair near the door, and having glanced at the young man standing leaning with his hand upon the couch, spoke with his eyes averted towards the ground. I heard by accident, by what accident is no matter, that one of my class was ill and solitary. I received no other description of him than that he lived in this street. Beginning my inquiries at the first house in it, I have found him. I have been ill, sir, returned the student, not merely with a modest hesitation, but with a kind of awe in him, but am greatly better. An attack of fever of the brain, I believe, has weakened me, but I am much better. I cannot say I have been solitary in my illness, or I should forget the ministering hand that has been near me. "'You are speaking of the keeper's wife,' said Redlaw. "'Yes,' the student bent his head as if he rendered her some silent homage. The chemist, in whom there was a cold, monotonous apathy, which rendered him more like a marble image on the tomb of the man who had started from his dinner yesterday at the first mention of this student's case, than the breathing man himself, glancing again at the student leaning with his hand upon the couch, and looked upon the ground and in the air as if for light for his blinded mind. "'I remembered your name,' he said, when it was mentioned to me downstairs just now, and I recollect your face. We have held but very little personal communication together.' very little. You have retired and withdrawn from me more than any of the rest, I think." The student signified assent. "'And why?' said the chemist, not with the least expression of interest, but with a moody, wayward kind of curiosity. "'Why, how comes it that you have sought to keep especially from me the knowledge of your remaining here at this season, when all the rest have dispersed, and of your being ill? I want to know why this is.' The young man, who had heard him with increasing agitation, raised his downcast eyes to his face, and, clasping his hands together, cried with sudden earnestness and with trembling lips, "'Mr. Redlaw, you have discovered me. You know my secret.' "'Secret?' said the chemist harshly. "'I know.' "'Yes. Your manner, so different from the interest and sympathy which endear you to so many hearts, your altered voice, the constraint there is in everything you say and in your looks, replied the student, warn me that you know me, that you would conceal it even now is but a proof to me, God knows I need none, of your natural kindness and of the bar that is between us. A vacant and contemptuous laugh was all his answer. 
"'But Mr. Redlaw,' said the student, "'as a just man and a good man, think how innocent I am, except in name and descent, of participation in any wrong inflicted on you or in any sorrow you have borne.' "'Sorrow?' said Redlaw, laughing. "'Wrong? What are those to me?' "'For heaven's sake,' entreated the shrinking student, "'do not let the mere interchange of a few words with me change you like this, sir. Let me pass again from your knowledge and notice. Let me occupy my old reserved and distant place among those whom you instruct. Know me only by the name I have assumed, and not by that of Longford.' "'Longford!' exclaimed the other. He clasped his head with both his hands, and for a moment turned upon the young man his own intelligent and thoughtful face but the light passed from it like the sunbeam of an instant, and it clouded as before. "'The name my mother bears, sir,' faltered the young man. "'The name she took when she might perhaps have taken one more honoured. Mr. Redlaw,' hesitating, "'I believe I know that history. Where my information halts, my guesses at what is wanting may supply something not remote from the truth. I am the child of a marriage that has not proved itself a well-assorted or a happy one.' from infancy i have heard you spoken of with honour and respect with something that was almost reverence i have heard of such devotion of such fortitude and tenderness of such rising up against the obstacles which press men down that my fancy since i learnt my little lesson from my mother has shed a lustre on your name at last a poor student myself from whom could i learn but you redlaw unmoved unchanged and looking at him with a staring frown altered by no word or sign. "'I cannot say,' pursued the other. "'I should try in vain to say how much it has impressed me and affected me to find the gracious traces of the past in that certain power of winning gratitude and confidence which is associated among us students, among the humblest of us most, with Mr. Redlaw's generous name. Our ages and positions are so different, sir, and I am so accustomed to regard you from a distance, that I wonder at my own presumption when I touch however lightly on that theme. But to one who, I may say, who felt no common interest in my mother once, it may be something to hear, now that all is past, with what indescribable feelings of affections I have in my obscurity regarded him, with what pain and reluctance I have kept aloof from his encouragement, when a word of it would have made me rich, yet how I have felt it fit that I should hold my course, content to know him and to be unknown. Mr. Redlaw, said the student faintly, what I would have said, I have said ill, for my strength is strange to me as yet. But for anything unworthy in this fraud of mine, forgive me, and for all the rest, forgive me. The staring frown remained on Redlaw's face, and yielded to no other expression until the student with these words advanced towards him, as if to touch his hand, when he drew back and cried to him, Don't come nearer to me. The young man stopped, shocked by the eagerness of his recoil, and by the sternness of his repulsion, and he passed his hand thoughtfully across his forehead. "'The past is past,' said the chemist. "'It dies like the brutes. Who talks of me of its traces in my life? He raves or lies. What I have to do with your distempered dreams? If you want money, here it is. I came to offer it, and that is all I came for. There can be nothing else that brings me here,' he muttered, holding his head again with both his hands. "'There can be nothing else, and yet—' He had tossed his purse upon the table. As he fell into this dim cogitation with himself, the student took it up and held it out to him. "'Take it back, sir,' he said proudly, though not angrily. "'I wish you could take from me with it the remembrance of your words and offer.' "'You do,' he retorted, with a wild light in his eyes. "'You do. I do.' The chemist went close to him, for the first time, and took the purse, and turned him by the arm and looked him in the face. "'There is sorrow and trouble and sickness, is there not?' he demanded, with a laugh. The wondering student answered, Yes, in its unrest, in its anxiety, in its suspense, in all its train of physical and mental miseries, said the chemist with a wild, unearthly exultation. All best forgotten, are they not? The student did not answer, but again passed his hand confusedly across his forehead. Redlaw still held him by the sleeve, when Milly's voice was heard outside. "'I can see very well now,' she said. "'Thank you, Dolph. Don't cry, dear. Father and mother will be comfortable again to-morrow, and home will be comfortable too. A gentleman with him, is there?' Redlaw released his hold as he listened. 
"'I have feared for the first moment,' he murmured to himself, to meet her. "'There is a steady quality of goodness in her that I dread to influence. "'I may be the murderer of what is tenderest and best within her bosom.' She was knocking at the door. "'Shall I dismiss it as an idle foreboding, or still avoid her?' he muttered, looking uneasily around. She was knocking at the door again. "'Of all the visitors who could come here,' he said, in a hoarse, alarmed voice, turning to his companion, "'this is the one I should desire most to avoid. Hide me.' The student opened a frail door in the wall, communicating where the garret-roof began to slope towards the floor, with a small inner room. Redlaw passed in hastily, and shut it after him. The student then resumed his place upon the couch, and called to her to enter. "'Dear Mr. Edmund,' said Milly, looking round, "'they told me there was a gentleman here. There is no one here but I. There has been some one?' "'Yes, yes, there has been some one.' She put her little basket on the table, and went up to the back of the couch, as if to take the extended hand, but it was not there. A little surprised in her quiet way, she leaned over to look at his face, and gently touched him on the brow. "'Are you quite as well to-night? Your head is not so cool as in the afternoon.' "'Tut,' said the student petulantly, "'very little ails me.' A little more surprise, but no reproach, was expressed in her face as she withdrew to the other side of the table, and took a small packet of needlework from her basket. But she laid it down again on second thoughts, and going noiselessly about the room, set everything exactly in its place, and in the neatest order, even to the cushions on the couch, which she touched with so light a hand that he hardly seemed to know it as he lay looking at the fire. When all this was done, and she had swept the hearth, she sat down in her modest little bonnet to her work, and was quietly busy on it directly. "'It's the new muslin curtain for the window, Mr. Edmund,' said Milly, stitching away as she talked. "'It will look very clean and nice, though it costs very little, and will save your eyes, too, from the light.' my william says the room should not be too light just now when you are recovering so well or the glare might make you giddy he said nothing but there was something so fretful and impatient in his change of position that her quick fingers stopped and she looked at him anxiously the pillows are not comfortable she said laying down her work and rising i will soon put them right they are very well he answered leave them alone pray you make so much of everything he raised his head to say this, and looked at her so thanklessly, that after he had thrown himself down again she stood timidly pausing. However, she resumed her seat and her needle, without having directed even a murmuring look towards him, and was soon as busy as before. "'I have been thinking, Mr. Edmund, that you have been often thinking of late, when I have been sitting by, how true the saying is, that adversity is a good teacher.' Health will be more precious to you after this illness than it has ever been, and years hence when this time of year comes round, and you remember the days when you lay here sick, alone, that the knowledge of your illness might not afflict those who are dearest to you, your home will be doubly dear and doubly blessed. Now isn't that a good, true thing?' She was too intent upon her work, and too earnest in what she said, and too composed and quiet altogether, to be on the watch for any look he might direct towards her in reply. So the shift of his ungrateful glance fell harmless, and did not wound her. "'Ah!' said Milly, with her pretty head inclining thoughtfully on one side, as she looked down, following her busy fingers with her eyes. "'Even on me, and I am very different from you, Mr. Edmund, for I have no learning and don't know how to think properly, this view of such things has made a great impression since you have been lying ill.' When I have seen you so touched by the kindness and attention of the poor people downstairs, I have felt that you thought even that experience some repayment for the loss of health, and I have read in your face as plain as if it was a book, that but for some trouble and sorrow we should never know half the good there is about us. His getting up from the couch interrupted her, or she was going on to say more. We needn't magnify the merit, Mrs. William, he rejoined slightingly. The people downstairs will be paid in good time, I dare say, for any little extra service they may have rendered me, and perhaps they anticipate no less. I am much obliged to you, too. His fingers stopped, and she looked at him. I can't be made to feel the more obliged by your exaggerating the case, he said. I am sensible that you have been interested in me, and I say I am much obliged to you. What more would you have? Her work fell on her lap, as she still looked at him walking to and fro with an intolerant air, and stopping now and then. 
I say again, I am much obliged to you. Why weaken my sense of what is your due in obligation by preferring enormous claims upon me? Trouble, sorrow, affliction, adversity. One might suppose I had been dying a score of deaths here. Do you believe, Mr. Edmund, she asked, rising and going nearer to him, that I spoke of the poor people of the house with any reference to myself, to me? Laying her hand upon her bosom with a simple and innocent smile of astonishment. "'Oh, I think nothing about it, my good creature,' he returned. "'I have had an indisposition, which your solicitude—observe, I say, solicitude—makes a great deal more of than its merits, and it's over, and we can't perpetuate it.' He coldly took a book and sat down at the table. She watched him for a little while until her smile was quite gone, and then returning to where her basket was, said gently, "'Mr. Edmund, would you rather be alone?' "'There is no reason why I should detain you here,' he replied. "'Except,' said Milly, hesitating, and showing her work. "'Oh, the curtain,' he answered, with a supercilious laugh. "'That's not worth staying for.' She made up the little packet again, and put it in her basket. Then, standing before him, with such an air of patient entreaty that he could not choose but look at her, she said, "'If you should want me, I will come back willingly.' When you did want me, I was quite happy to come. There was no merit in it. I think you must be afraid that now you are getting well, I may be troublesome to you. But I should not have been, indeed. I should have come no longer than your weakness and confinement lasted. You owe me nothing. But it is right that you should deal as justly by me as if I were a lady, even the very lady that you love, and if you suspect me of meanly making much of the little I have tried to do to comfort your sick-room, you do yourself more wrong than ever you can do me. That is why I am sorry. That is why I am very sorry. If she had been as passionate as she was quiet, as indignant as she was calm, as angry in her look as she was gentle, as loud of tone as she was low and clear, she might have left no sense of her departure in the room compared with that which fell upon the lonely student when she went away. He was gazing drearily upon the place where she had been, when Redlaw came out of his concealment and came to the door. "'When sickness lays its hand on you again,' he said, looking fiercely back at him, "'may it be soon. Die here. Rot here.' "'What have you done?' returned the other, catching at his cloak. "'What change have you wrought in me? What curse have you brought upon me? Give me back myself!' "'Give me back myself!' exclaimed Redlaw, like a madman. "'I am infected! I am infectious! I am charged with poison for my own mind, and the minds of all mankind. Where I felt interest, compassion, sympathy, I am turning into stone. Selfishness and ingratitude spring up in my blighted footsteps.' I am only so much less base in the wretches whom I make so, that in the moment of their transformation I can hate them." As he spoke, the young man still holding to his cloak, he cast him off and struck him, then wildly hurried out into the night air where the wind was blowing, the snow falling, the cloud-drift sweeping on, the moon dimly shining, and where, blowing in the wind, falling with the snow, drifting with the clouds, shining in the moonlight, and heavily looming in the darkness, were the phantom's word. THE GIFT THAT I HAVE GIVEN, YOU SHALL GIVE AGAIN, GO WHERE YOU WILL. Whither he went, he neither knew nor cared, so that he avoided company. The charge he felt within him made the busy streets a desert, and himself a desert, and the multitude around him, in their manifold endurances and ways of life, a mighty waste of sand, which the winds tossed into unintelligible heaps and made a ruinous confusion of. Those traces in his breast which the phantom had told him would die out soon were not as yet so far upon their way to death, but that he understood enough of what he was, and what he made of others, to desire to be alone. This put it in his mind, he suddenly bethought himself as he was going along, of the boy who had rushed into his room, and then he recollected that of those with whom he had communicated since the phantom's disappearance, that boy alone had shown no sign of being changed. Monstrous and odious as the wild thing was to him, he determined to seek it out, and prove if this were really so, and also to seek it with another intention which came into his thoughts at the same time. 
So, resolving with some difficulty where he was, he directed his steps back to the old college, and to that part of it where the general porch was, and where alone the pavement was worn by the tread of the student's feet. The keeper's house stood just within the iron gates, forming a part of the chief quadrangle. There was a little cloister outside, and from that sheltered place he knew he could look in at the window of their ordinary room and see who was within. The iron gates were shut, but his hand was familiar with the fastening, and drawing it back by thrusting in his wrist between the bars, he passed through softly, shut it again, and crept up to the window, crumbling the thin crust of snow with his feet. The fire to which he had directed the boy last night, shining brightly through the glass, made an illuminated place upon the ground. Instinctively avoiding this, and going round it, he looked in at the window. At first he thought that there was no one there, and that the blaze was reddening only in the old beams in the ceiling and the dark walls, but peering in more narrowly, he saw the object of his search coiled asleep before it on the floor. He passed quickly to the door, opened it, and went in. The creature lay in such a fiery heat that as the chemist stooped to rouse him, it scorched his head. So soon as he was touched, the boy, not half awake, clutching his rags together with the instinct of flight upon him, half rolled and half ran into a distant corner of the room, where, heaped upon the ground, he struck his foot out to defend himself. "'Get up,' said the chemist. "'You have not forgotten me.' "'You let me alone,' returned the boy. "'This is the woman's house, not yours.' The chemist's steady eye controlled him somewhat, or inspired him with enough submission to be raised upon his feet and looked at. "'Who washed them, and who put those bandages where they were bruised and cracked?' asked the chemist, pointing to their altered state. "'The woman did.' "'And is it she who has made you cleaner in the face, too?' "'Yes, the woman.' Redlaw asked these questions to attract his eyes towards himself, and with the same intent now held him by the chin, and drew his wild hair back, though he loathed to touch him. The boy watched his eyes keenly, as if he thought it needful to his own defence, not knowing what he might do next, and Redlaw could see well that no change came over him. "'Where are they?' he inquired. "'The woman's out.' "'I know she is. Where is the old man with the white hair and his son?' "'The woman's husband, do you mean?' inquired the boy. "'Aye. Where are those two? Out. Something's the matter somewhere. They were fetched out in a hurry and told me to stop here.' "'Come with me,' said the chemist, "'and I'll give you money.' "'Come where, and how much will you give?' "'I'll give you more shillings than you ever saw, and bring you back soon. "'Do you know your way to where you came from?' "'You let me go,' returned the boy, suddenly twisting out of his grasp. "'I'm not a-going to take you there. Let me be, or I'll heave some fire at you.' He was down before it, and ready, with his savage little hand, to pluck the burning coals out. What the chemist had felt in observing the effect of his charmed influence stealing over those with whom he came in contact, was not nearly equal to the cold, vague terror with which he saw this baby monster put it at defiance. It chilled his blood to look on the immovable, impenetrable thing in the likeness of his child, with its sharp, malignant face turned up to his, and its almost infant hand ready at the bars. "'Listen, boy,' he said. "'You shall take me where you please, so that you take me where the people are very miserable or very wicked. I want to do them good, and not to harm them. You shall have money, as I have told you, and I will bring you back. Get up, come quickly.' He made a hasty step towards the door, afraid of her returning. "'Will you let me walk by myself, and never hold me, nor yet touch me?' said the boy, slowly withdrawing the hand with which he threatened, and beginning to get up. "'I will.' and let me go before, behind, or any ways I like, I will. Give me some money first, then, and go. The chemist laid a few shillings one by one in his extended hand. To count them was beyond the boy's knowledge, but he said one every time, and avariciously looked at each as it was given, and at the donor. He had nowhere to put them out of his hand but in his mouth, and he put them there. Redlaw then wrote with his pencil on a leaf of his pocket-book that the boy was with him, and laying it on the table signed to him to follow. Keeping his rags together as usual, the boy complied, and went out with his bare head and naked feet into the winter night. Preferring not to depart by the iron gate by which he had entered, where they were in danger of meeting her whom he so anxiously avoided, the chemist led the way through some of those passages among which the boy had lost himself, and by that portion of the building where he lived, to a small door of which he had the key. When they got into the street, he stopped to ask his guide, who instantly retreated from him, if he knew where they were. 
The savage thing looked here and there, and at length, nodding his head, pointed in the direction he designed to take. Redlaw going on at once, he followed, something less suspiciously, shifting his money from his mouth into his hand and back again into his mouth, and stealthily rubbing it bright upon his shreds of dress as he went along. Three times in their progress they were side by side. Three times they stopped being side by side. Three times the chemist glanced down at his face, and shuddered as it forced him upon one reflection. The first occasion was when they were crossing an old churchyard, and Redlaw stopped among the graves, utterly at a loss how to connect them with any tender softening or consolatory thought. The second was, when the breaking forth of the moon induced him to look up at the heavens, where he saw her in her glory, surrounded by a host of stars he still knew by the names and histories which human science had appended to them, by where he saw nothing else he had been wont to see, felt nothing he had been wont to feel, in looking up there on a bright night. The third was when he stopped to listen to a plaintive strain of music, but could only hear a tune made manifest to him by the dry mechanism of the instruments and his own ears, with no address to any mystery within him, without a whisper in it of the past or of the future, powerless upon him as the sound of last year's running water or the rushing of last year's wind. At each of these three times he saw with horror that in spite of the vast intellectual distance between them, and their being unlike each other in all physical respects, the expression on the boy's face was the expression on his own. End of Part 1 of Chapter 2 of The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain End of Section 17